Welcome to episode number 145 of my favorite detective stories. Today's date is January 25th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is David Hodges. David is a former superintendent with the Thames Valley Police. He is a prolific crime writer and author of 14 crime novels, plus the autobiography on his life in the police service. His debut crime novel received critical media acclaim and a welcome accolade from Inspector Morse's creator, the late, great Colin Dexter. And since then, he has become an author of several successful standalone thrillers, including Blast and Target. In particular, his Somerset Murder series, published with Jaffe Books, is set on the mist-shrouded Somerset levels in England and featuring the exploits of a feisty detective Kate and her easygoing partner Hayden, and has gone from strength to strength, attracting keen interest in Europe, the USA, and Australia, as well as Britain. The latest novels in the series, Stalker on the Levels, being published by Jaffe Books in November 2021 in time for Christmas. David is married with two daughters and four grandchildren and lives in the UK with his wife Elizabeth, where he continues to indulge his passion for thriller writing and to pursue his keen interest in the countryside. He is a member of the Crime Writers Association, the Crime Readers Association, the Society of Authors and International Thriller Writers. It is my pleasure to bring David onto the show. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. So, uh, how are things in southwest Wales today? Very, very wet and stormy. We've got 400 mile an hour gales off the coast at the moment, so it's quite rich here at the moment. <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I can't imagine. Uh, we get some nasty weather here on the east coast of Connecticut, but uh, today uh, it is uh, slightly overcast. Uh, temperatures are in the mid-40s. Now, that's Fahrenheit, so it's above freezing here. And uh, it's, it, it's a normal uh, early December day. So, David, I, I just wanted to say thank you for, for coming on the show, and I do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I was interested in y- your background, sir, because uh, many years of law enforcement, as we call it here in the States, and then you decided to write, and you also wrote an autobiography. So I am very interested in what you have to tell us today. So just start at the beginning, uh, go back to way back in the day, because we are we are somewhat contemporary, sir. I, I joined the police force in 1976, so that your 1964 date just predates me a little bit. But go ahead. So <laughs> get started. Makes me a very old man. 
Well, I'm, I joined the police force in 1964, as it was then Berkshire County Constabulary, then became Thames Valley on amalgamation. Um, and we amalgamated, ironically, on the 1st of April, <laughs> which was April Fool's Day, which was um, some <laughs> said it was apt, but there we are. Um, I worked in the force and worked in most ranks, from constable to superintendent. Um, I served on the uh, what we call our support group, which um, I suppose I don't know what you'd call it in the States, but it's um, an armed unit that deals with uh, like a SWAT team, really. Um, and I was there, firearms trained. I then left there. Um, I've served on a rural station. I served on towns, big towns, small towns, um, headquarters, which I didn't enjoy, and uh, got promoted progressively through the ranks served as towards the end as a force press public relations officer and dealt with all the press and media and as i said before that um everything then was more steam driven it was uh, not as sophisticated as it is now um and following on from that i became head of corporate communication for the force which was all to do with pr and retired in 94 okay now that's a that's a long, that's a very long and uh, illustrious career, 30 years. Yep. And any good uh, stories to tell? No, any good stories to tell about some of the, your days back on the force? I mean, any ones that you look back with, with a little twinkle in your eye and ones that you enjoy? Well, <clears throat> in those days, things were a lot different. Um, practical jokes were rife. <laughs> um, you had a laugh. You could talk about anything. Now it's very much stifled. You can't say anything. You can't speak about anything. Mm. Jokes are regarded as non persona gratis. It's, it's all very, very different. It's not the force that I joined. Sure. Um, but, but um, as I say, I enjoyed it, my time there. There were a lot of stories I have. I mean, I can remember in a rural beat, which we call a rural beat, is a small village and surrounded by woodland and fields and other villages, um, of uh, going in a hurry to get to what we used to call a point, which was you had to, every two hours, you had to go to a telephone kiosk and wait for 10 minutes in case the, the uh, headquarters wanted you because we didn't have radios in those days. And uh, I was going too fast and went down a slope and hit a five-bar gate. Oh, boy. So I was airborne and f- landed in a, some cow pats the other side of the gate. <laughs> very, very, very humiliated and pushed my rather damaged bike to my point. And no one ever knew. They do now. Probably half a million people would know. But uh, that's one of the things I remember. Um, I can remember going to a house just before I uh, was promoted to chief inspector. We go sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, superintendent in this force. Okay. Um, And uh, we went there expecting just to tell a young man to leave because he had trouble with his father. He went upstairs to get his coat and I heard doors opening and closing. And I said to the father, what's up there? He said, oh, he said, I've got a shotgun in my bedroom. So we went up to this young lad who was in his cups, if you like. He was had too much to drink. Sure. And uh, on the way down, he came down with a double-barreled shotgun, which he promptly stuck in my stomach. Oh, nice. So I had to retreat. He backed away. I retreated with him to the bedroom. And we, my colleague and I got the gun off him, and it turned out to be empty. Oh, jeez. He hadn't been able to find the ammunition. That's what he'd been looking for. Oh, so my. that was it incident which could have ended much more differently than it did yes so you've got the two two um parts of the spectrum there one at each end um the humor and also you've also got the uh the quite 
I suppose you'd call it exciting if you weren't actually involved. I didn't find it exciting at the time. Oh, no. So that's the sort of thing I was involved in quite a lot. We had quite a few riots um, with shields, etc., and uh, raids on houses. Very similar, I would suggest, to what you do in the States. Sure. You know, the same sort of things apply. But, of course, we don't routinely carry firearms over here. I, I wanted to ask... Uh and this, and you were not, uh, except for that time period when you were on what would be the equivalent of a SWAT team. Most of the uh, most of your law enforcement did not carry a, uh, a sidearm. It was uh, what a, a, a truncheon or a, a baton, and uh, I guess a whistle, for lack of a better word. Right. That's right. The whistle to attract attention. Yes, handcuffs. Um, they're still used. Um, we got different sorts of handcuffs now. We had hand bolts. Okay. So if you arrested anybody, you had to hold him and put the cuff, cuffs together and stick a key in to tighten them up. <laughs> well, I didn't expect him to lie there and wait for you to finish, but uh, now <laughs> it's different. They've got quick cuffs. Yeah, I gotcha. But the truncheon, you talked about the truncheon, that was 14 inches long and was concealed in a pocket in your in your trousers. And if you drew it, you had to put a report in in triplicate to say why you drew it. Um much more different situation today. They've got the similar nightsticks to what you use in the States, carbon fiber. Um, so it was, it's a different ball game altogether, really. Okay. Now, but you also, in your first story, mentioned about your bike. And I mean, you're talking about a bicycle as part of, you were on your rounds in this, in this town in a bicycle. That's right. Yeah. It wasn't in a town. It was a country area, 26 square miles. I had 12 villages. And I was on a bike <laughs> with a whistle. <laughs> okay. And call boxes every so often. That's right. Every two hours. Oh, my. That was uh, – I'm sure your legs were very sturdy uh, after that. Uh, I was very fit then, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Anyhow, uh, I just wanted to ask you then, uh, back in the day when you were, uh, you know, actively policing and then moved up into the uh, administrative and managerial ranks, uh, did you like to read about crime? Did you like to read about uh, crime novels? Did you have any authors that uh, were favorites of yours back then? Well, yes, it's, it's a complete reversal, really, because I, now I deal with contemporary um, crime stories. In those days, I was very switched on to uh, old-fashioned Victorian thrillers like Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes. And also thrillers written written by a chap called Sax Romy. I don't know if you've heard of him. He used to write the Fu Manchu stories, which I now collect. Oh, um, wow. So I was very much, very much Victorian then, and I didn't change until I re- left the police force. And I was told they yeah, want contemporary work, not old-fashioned type stories. You see, so then I changed to contemporary. Okay. Now I am, uh, I am a big fan of uh, Sherlock Holmes, and uh, and that uh, A. Conan Doyle uh, had written him and actually wrote him out. Killed him off, I believe, and the and the fans. That's right. Uh, had their uh, had a uh, terrible time with that, a, a real you and cry, and decided that they uh, they didn't like that idea. So he had to bring him back, and that was interesting. Um, and he did. So it was quite nice of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle to do that. Um, I I enjoyed all of those. Um, because as an active uh, uh, police officer, I really got to enjoy uh, the powers of observation and the 
deductive reasoning that uh, Sherlock used and how it just completely always amazed his uh, faithful companion, Dr. Uh, Watson, you know? So uh, uh, did you find uh, anything pr- particular about in um, Sherlock Holmes that attracted you to, the, to reading um, the series? I think it's the period more than anything. Okay. I mean, Victorian... Victorian London, for example, is um, was a hotbed of crime in those days, and uh, which is now, but uh, it was even worse then. And uh, the the atmosphere, the um, fog, the steamers on the river hooting, and this sort of thing, it fired the imagination. You couldn't help be, being impressed by the uh, the way the things were written and how they how they dealt with things, if you like. Sure. Um, I I I, I found his stories excellent, you know, and. Uh, but I mean, I don't even really know. But he he was he actually killed his hero off Conan Doyle in uh, the Reichenbach Falls um, in Switzerland, and uh, he had to bring him back. He wanted to write historical stories, and he used to write about a chap called Brigadier, Brigadier Gerard, but uh, he never managed to make any um, headway with those. He um, so he stuck to Sherlock Holmes. But I think they were a tremendous story. The plots weren't very very. Uh, Brilliant, really. They were. You knew who the killers were half the time, and uh, or he just produced them out of thin air. The atmosphere, <laughs> the atmosphere was absolutely incredible. Now you would appreciate that, of course, because you many many times you walked some of those same streets, or you or you ambled down some of those same lanes, so you would know where he was talking about and and what it, and what he was and what was being described. All right. Well, I've never I never worked in the Met. Metropolitan Police is a separate area. Thames Valley is next door to it. Oh, okay. So we were next door to the Met. We worked with them, but we did weren't part of the Met. But you're right. I used to work in Central London before the police force, and I did go around all those streets deliberately mm. to drink in the atmosphere and have a look at the, uh, the the territory, if you like, to see where he operated. That is really neat, David. And uh, you know, and, and you talk about the uh, the horse carriages and the gas lamps and uh, you know the gas uh, lit uh, fog and shroud streets. I, you know, you're telling me something that just brings back my memory of uh, the Sherlock Holmes novels and how and how much of a period piece it was, but also how much the setting played into the uh, to the, the the whole story and how many times. Uh, if it weren't for that fog or if it wasn't for the rain, you know, the, the, uh, the bad guy wouldn't have gotten away as quickly the first time. Does that make sense? No, you so, yeah. Anyway, so, um, so, but tell me more about, uh, the writer of the Fu Manchu. And I, and I didn't quite pick up on his name, the writer. Sax Romer. It was a nom de plume. Okay. Sax, S-A-X and then R-O-H-M-E-R, two words. Okay. He wrote in the 1920s, really, through to the 30s, um, about a chap who wanted to dominate the world. You couldn't do it now because he's Chinese, and so therefore you'd be called racist. But uh, the stories weren't written for that reason. They were written as a sort of a a thrillers. Sure. Um, And he was a man of um, uh, weird um, murder methods, the poisonous spiders on curtains, you know, snakes stuck into walking sticks to resemble the head of the walking stick. Um, giant gorillas that used to walk across the roof at night. Oh, boy. That sort of thing. So yeah. it was a very much atmospheric, but fantastic fantasy, really. Now, you say you're a collector. Now, uh, how does that work? 
Well, I started reading when I was a young lad. My mother, who was always behind me on this, I was bored one day. She said, go and read Sex Romer. I did as a child. And I bought one of the books called The Mystery of Dr. Fu Manchu. And I was hooked. Mm. And from then on, when I was working in London in the Telegraphs, I uh, um, used to buy a book, Foyle's new bookshop, every week. Could only afford one a week because we hadn't got much money in those days. Sure. Um, until I built up my collection and I still collect now. I've got about 43 of his books now. Wow. And um, I asked that because um, I'm sure you're doing it uh, as a hobby. Have you been able to see any um, idea what a, what the what that collection might be worth in, in terms of uh, uh, a, a seller and, and buyers? Interested in? Um, I don't know. I know that the early ones, some of the books I've got, some I've got second editions and first editions. Some of those are worth quite a bit of money. Um, but it, the main market for these has been America. Really? The Americans. Oh, yeah. This is where Fu Manchu has found a home. Um, and uh, you'll find uh, American public will pay a lot more for the books than we will over here. Hmm. But that's, I'm no intention of selling. <laughs> that, that's, 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 you, that, that's why it's your hobby. That's great. That's fantastic. Yeah. Now, David, uh, at some point, um, you decided that you wanted to write. And how did that come about? And uh, can you kind of walk me through that process of going from a former superintendent to a uh, crime writer? Well, basically, it goes back to when I can tell, actually tell you the age. I was 11. And I read my first Fu Manchu book. And from then on, I wanted to write about it. Um, and I did no end of short stories and short novels, etc., all re with rejection slips. Um, I then, after a couple of spells in London, in jobs in London, I joined the police force. Okay. Um, and uh, after seeing Dixon of Doc Green on the television, which was an old-fashioned film in those days. Um, and, because uh, when I joined the police force... I was told my sergeant stood in front of the open coal fire one day. He said, and uh, he said, you're all right, David, in this job. He said, provided, he says, you don't play the violin or write poetry or books. But as <laughs> I did both, I kept my mouth shut. But, of course, I wasn't allowed to to write books. In those days, you weren't allowed to involve yourself in public um, shows of that nature. I mean, you had to ask permission to get married. You had to ask permission to get married, ask permission to where you lived your houses were inspected places you weren't allowed to live next door to like gaming dens or other places of ill repute and this was it was very very strict uh, it was like military discipline in those days mm. it didn't change until about the 67 66 67 then it started to ease a bit so that's when i started writing but i had to give it up for 30 years oh my while i was in the police force and when I left, I wrote my first crime book, which was called Flashpoint, about a police strike. Um, and it hit the, hit the uh, headlines. It went in the, in the um, Times newspaper in London. And uh, Colin Dexter, who writes the Moore series, he read it, liked it, and gave me a really good accolade, which sold the book from then on. It sold out. So I wrote another one called Burnout. Um, that sold out. And then... This publisher who then did my Reflections in Blue, which was the um, story of my um, life in the police force, she uh, went to the wall, basically, um, financially, and packed in. 
And because of that, um, she stopped publishing. So I then had to look around for somewhere else. So after many, many efforts, I got through to Robert Hale in London and they started publishing my books. And luck, as bad luck would have it, they decided to retire after doing six of them. And then I went to uh, Joff, Joff Books, which who is my present publisher, and they've published now nine of my uh, series, Somerset Murder series, and an, an additional one, a standalone book as well. Okay. Um, and another publisher called Loom Books, they've published two of my other ones as well, standalones. And it's still going on. I've just had my last one, latest one published, Stalker on the Levels, which came out this month. And I've just finished my next one for next year, and that's in with the publisher now. So busy, busy. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. And uh, that that is just such a great story on all levels, that um, you didn't allow the uh, bureaucracy of the of the police, the policing organization to dim your uh, desire to write. I mean, you had to postpone it, but it didn't extinguish it. And then after that, you were able to, uh, as, as things loosened up a little bit, you were able to start writing and uh, find a publisher and not only find one publisher, but now you've, if I count right, uh, you mentioned four, um, Hale, Joffrey, and then this most recent one. So that's amazing. That's fantastic stuff. That tells me that uh, uh, an acquisitions editor and a publisher uh, looks at your writing and says, not only is this something that we think we can sell, but it's something that we think uh, the readership will want to get another one of. And they're, and so they're investing in you. And, you know, you know, they had, you know, you know, the, there were situations where the first lady and then Hale had to, uh, you know, they, they, they went their own way, but that didn't mean that your writing ended. And that meant that uh, you still had a readership that was interested in uh, your brand, for lack of a better word. I don't want to, you know, sound like a buzzword there, but they know it is. It's a brand. Really. Yeah. So what, what does a reader expect uh, when they pick up a David Hodge book, what is it uh, that they're in the in the Somerset series? What is the expectation there? Just kind of walk me through. Well, the the main characters I decided on a female detective, detective sergeant, for something different, and she's dynamic, very very um, open and uh, irritating, goes <laughs> her own way, disobeys all orders and that sort of thing. And her husband, and this is true. I, I aped him on uh, my on Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister. <laughs> so he he's laissez laced. I don't think he knows that, but he's with very laissez faire, laid back, ex university, not interested really in doing police work. He's more interested in food and he's um, interested in classic cars. She's the opposite. She's dynamic, wants to get up and go, but he acts as a break on her activities because he's very logical, very clever and can see through things, and she wants to go ahead and break doors down and this sort of thing. So they're completely opposite characters. Um, and each of the stories is set on the Somerset Levels, which is an area of um, marshland, beautiful area, um, legend. That's where King Arthur was supposed to have lived at one time, um, in, the, in the middle of Somerset. And uh, each murder occurs on that uh, in that area. But I tried to make each one different 
Mm-hmm. So the one I've just submitted, for example, is about escape poisonous spider. Um, um, that's just gone into the publisher. So if you're an arachnophobe like I am, um, you probably won't want to read that. <laughs> well, that's so interesting. And, um, and it's a husband and wife and they're both on the, they both police. They are both, uh, yep. oh, that's very unusual for that to happen. Yes, it is. And it's set in modern time. I take it. Yes. Yeah. Regular, oh yes, it is. Uh, yeah, it, it's uh, contemporary, as I I would say. That's yeah, it's contemporary. Yeah. Well, I I don't know too many uh, in real life. I know it happens, uh, but I don't know too many husbands and wives that uh, are uh, on the force together. So it makes for not only interesting uh, pillow talk, but also you know what's going on with um, the union, what's going on with contracts, what's going on with you know the bureaucracy of the of the organization, mm-hmm. as well as the the who done it part. So that's a real interesting that that gives uh, that gives a your reader a real a real full sided view of the crime being investigated by a few different type of personality types. And like you said, one balances the other. So it's like a yin and a yang. That's really cute how you do that. Now, how long have they been uh, the, your dynamic duo in the Somerset level uh, mystery? They've been now for about the past two, two years, something like that. Um, two to three years. Um, Joff books are a very go ahead fiction publisher um, and very demanding as to what they want, but very easy to work with. And uh, they've pushed these and marketed them, which I couldn't have done myself. Okay. And uh, also created the royalties that I get regularly, which is very nice indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the idea really is that um, I suppose in a way someone said to me, you, you didn't like the uh, police hierarchy of your force, did you? I said, it isn't that. I'm critical of the way it operates in some respects. I was always with the lads on the ground. And that's how I, I think policemen should be rather than in a corridor trying to work out um, your next move up the ladder. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that is what happens now today in most organizations. But um, the idea is that uh, this detective sergeant, Kate, um, she is very, very open and can't stand bureaucracy and he's constantly being censured for disobeying orders and doing her own thing. And Hayden, her husband, keeps trying to haul her back down and try and um, make some sense out of it and get her sensibly occupied in doing things properly. Um, and uh, it creates a sort of a dynamics between the two. And that's what I try and do. So that there's a subplot. There's always several subplots in the, in the stories, not just the main murder. There's subplots as well, you know, I mean, he gets married. She gets marital difficulties. Um, he gets problems with relations who are on drugs. All things that you have to deal with while they're trying to investigate these murders. So, sure, uh, you know. No, I get it. But, uh, I wouldn't want to. Wouldn't want to create the impression that the that Somerset levels are murders every other day. So <laughs> I know. No, I know, and, and we joke about that. That um, you know, there are more murders in Iceland in the books than there are actually that take place in in that country of Iceland. Yeah, and uh, you know, a lot of Scandinavian noir the same thing. That there's more murders by the mystery writers than there are actually taking place, which I'm happy for because in America, well, it's not the case. You know, it's not not that way at all. We're still the Wild West here. But anyway, uh, 
Interestingly, it, I thought of this as you were speaking about uh, how Joffrey wanted something a certain way. You had to go not only through four publishers, but I imagine four different editors, somebody that you had to submit your manuscript to, and they would have to get reacquainted with, they. you had four new people had to get used to you each time. How did that work out? Well, originally, you see, the, the, um, the series... Um, I, I wrote for, for um, Robert Hale. Um, they had different titles. They were all different titles. Um, and they were just an idea. I got an idea in my head about a story, and then I had to, did a sequel to it, and then it followed on from there. And they did those first few. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Joff said the idea he brought out, and it was his idea, Jeff Joff, who runs the company, why don't you tie them all together so when someone reads one of your books, they know – what's going to happen in the sense that uh, they know the characters and they know it's a developing situation. So if first and foremost, the, the, um, the couple met at a police station, then the next one they got married in. And so it goes on and all their, their lives start to, they start to get older through the service and things start to happen. Um, so it's progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so if they said, call them by the same um, title, if you like. So it's murder on the levels, revenge on the levels, fear on the levels. So people know when they pick up the book that it's going to be the same characters on different episodes. So that's, it worked very well. So really the editorship was different. Okay. And, uh, the difference between, uh, Hale and Joffrey, I, I can imagine. But, uh, I know that I've had the opportunity in my writing career to, uh, sample different editors. Uh, and they all have a different way of a unique way of, of, uh, editing, uh, my manuscripts. And I have to be honest with you. Uh, I feel very, uh, happy that I'm getting such a cross fertilization of different ideas in different ways. Cause it makes me a better author. If I had the same editor, you know, book after book after book, uh, I'm not sure I would be uh, stretching as well. I wouldn't be uh, growing as well. I wouldn't be uh, trying things differently, you know? So, but uh, that's just me. And I just wanted to run that by you, see, you know, see what you felt because you had editors from four different publishers. Yeah. But bearing in mind the, the original two publishers, um, which was um, a firm called Pharaoh Press, who I owe a great deal to because they took a chance with me. Yes. Pharaoh uh, Press and, um, then Robert Hale, the books I wrote for them originally were not in the same, not the same type of book that I'm writing for, for Joff. They were purely murder mysteries, whereas now it's a series. I see. So um, it's slightly different. The editors, yes, they wanted different things, um, but I think I've learned so much with Joff, um, particularly on the marketing, which I'm, I'm not uh, switched on to. I leave that to the publisher. Um, but you say that uh, different editors have different ideas. They do, because the most important people really are the editorial readers, because they come up with ideas. And I've had arguments galore <laughs> over the years, you know, yeah. particularly on things when they say, you can't say this, you can't say that. That really gets my goat. Um, okay. And I'm very, very careful what I put in the books. I don't use... The, the exceptional foul words. I'm fed up with books that are full of foul language, but they have, they do swear, but it's, it's, it's acceptable swear words, not the four letter words that uh, are in most books. I, got and you. I don't think they're necessary now. 
I think it's overplayed. So I, I'm very strict on that. I will not use those in, in my books. And I haven't done through 10 books. That's, that's an interesting that decision now. to make because, uh, as we both know, uh, uh, policemen like, uh, stevedores, like capsi, uh, uh, taxi cab drivers can swear up a storm. So yeah. Oh I know. yeah. Definitely. Oh, we, we were the same. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think if you're doing that, you're doing that in everyday life. That's acceptable. It's, it's, it's a safety valve and this sort of thing. And the force I was in was no different. I'm no different. No. But I just think in print, when you write that swear word down, it looks absolutely awful. And uh, I tried it once. I thought, I just can't put that in. I'm not going to do it. Okay. Um, and, of course, you run up against difficulties then. Joff hasn't said this to me, but some publishers won't accept it. They want the swear words in. They do. Yeah. So if you don't do it, they're not interested. No kidding. Which is sad. Yeah. It's like the the uh, obligatory uh, scene where the uh, in the movie where the uh, the blouse has to come off or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I, I get you. I understand. So uh, we talked a little bit about us as you know, as cops, and but you also wrote an autobiography. So uh, tell me about that. Tell me about that. How why you thought to do it and why you, you chose to go that route. Okay. Well, I I wanted to. Um if you like, uh, retrace my steps over the years and have something to remember. And it was written originally as a sort of a hobby type book. And I didn't realize it would do so well. Um, and that's out of print now as well. The first three are, um, because the publishers, as I say, she no longer publishes, but, um, I, I had the idea of telling people what it was like to be a copper, as we call them over here, a copper yep, on the street doing every day. Th- and I thought what I'll do each chapter, I'll have a separate issue that they deal with. For instance, one's sudden deaths, another one's m- robberies, another one's um, traffic accidents. So every aspect of policing is covered in each each chapter, mm. but on a progressive way. So I also put my own stamp on it to say, this is my career, this is what I did. And as I go through my career from constable to superintendent, I then deal with these issues of the various aspects of policing that they, that police officers deal with. Um, and, uh, I've also gave me the opportunity of having a little bit of a dig at some of the things that I think are wrong in the force. Sure. Why not? Um, a lot of those have been rectified now, but uh, some still exist. So it was, it was a, a sort of a, a much broader book. I, I could say things then in a book, provided they weren't, uh, uh, against the law. Um, that I couldn't say when I was in the police force, if you follow me. Oh, no, I get it. I so understand. I could be open and honest. Yeah. But I, I know that a lot of uh, writers uh, that come from law enforcement will disguise their um, their own uh, feelings about how policing should be conducted in the uh, in their protagonists or in the stories they tell. And they're able to rail at the administration because of this or because of that. And I know that uh, I, I remember reading uh, Michael Connolly's uh, Harry Bosch. Uh, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, if, it, if there was the main crime of trying to figure out who did it, then there was a some sort of a side plot usually having to do with a crime as well. And my dog is barking in the background. 
and that's all right. Don't take any notice. <laughs> and uh, and then there's uh, the uh, and then there's the, uh, the 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 infighting within the police department. Many times that could have uh, upended his investigations, and you know it was that was more serious sometimes than the actual getting the bad guy or the who done it. You know, so I, I appreciated that from the Connolly standpoint, and and you talk about this in your autobiography. I take it, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, not in a in a. I mean, my force, not because I it was my force. Um, they were very, very good. They were probably one of the premier forces in this country now, um, and I was very proud to be um, with them. Um, so it didn't go on to that extent, but there's always um, um, competition. Mm. in ranks and everything else in any organization. And I've, I've been in other organizations as well, the health service and various other places. So um, I was able to contrast that, but um, I was trying to be honest. It wasn't, it wasn't an intention to denigrate anybody. It was a question of saying this goes on, this goes on because of, and uh, I finished up on the story by saying um, I left, I was tired. I'd had enough. 30 years was enough. Um, and they were talking about um, um, focus groups and meetings and every, everything was a meeting. And I talked to myself one day, I had a chat with myself, and I thought, well, this isn't what I joined the police force for. I joined to catch criminals. I didn't join to be sitting in dusty halls discussing fat tactics and strategies. So I've tried to give the impression of how things change and how you change with it. Mm-hmm. Sure. No, I get it. And do you think that writing the autobiography when you did – uh, it it allowed you to or take off some of the shackles or chains and and write a little bit more uh, creatively or inventively in your uh, Somerset Levels uh, series. Do you think there was any um, uh, release, I guess, from writing uh, your autobiography that allowed you to then to to focus more on what you wanted to do in in the Somerset uh, Levels books? Did I say that right? Well, you. Yeah, you did. You, you said just now a little while ago <clears throat> that some authors use this as an opportunity to, um, if you like, rage against the world on what they think of things that are wrong. Um, and that's true to a certain extent. All my characters, I mean, I suppose subliminally, without re- knowing I'm doing it, the uh, woman police officer, um, the sergeant, is me to some extent. In Not that I, I disobeyed orders, but, but she... She's breaking out from the restraints of the job, thinking, well, it's more important for me to catch criminals than obey some dictate which says I can't do this and I can't do that. So that's me, really, to a large extent, suppressed when I was in the police force. So that, that is echoes through my characters, yes. Okay. I do that all the time. Um, and uh, but with, with um, her husband, Hayden, I just got this um, idea when I saw Boris on television, who I admire greatly, um, giving a speech, and I thought they will make a superb character, and that's why I put him in the book. I haven't been sued yet, but um, <laughs> I'm not saying that my character does does things that he does, but he it's the look of him really. The, the um, he's, he's such a, a a personable figure. Okay, he's untidy and all the rest of it, but he's he's quite a a proper character, and I think that's very important. Absolutely, and, uh, I mean people. People talk about him, but I'm, I'm very much uh, switched on to him. I think he's a great bloke, and that's, I try and put that through in my book, but I don't mention that he's, 
<laughs> I don't say all credits to Boris Johnson. <laughs> no, I get you. I hear. I hear what you're saying, David. Um, uh, you you have been a pro- prodigious writer. And uh, how many books now can and do you, do you have them uh, counted up uh, in in your head? Yeah, I've got um, with 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 the autobiography. It'll be sixteen with the one I've just put in if they publish it. So it's a total of sixteen altogether. Um, Fifteen of those have been published, and one of those is the uh, autobiography. So it's a. Uh, but I'm getting to the stage now. I'm tired now, and. Uh, I find as I get older, 78 next year, Yeah. Um, I don't know how much longer I'll carry on. I always said I'd write till I drop, but uh, that's all right in theory. <laughs> um, it is hard work. People, you know as well as I do, it isn't easy. No. It's hard work to get the thing right. Right. You know, yes. if it's easy, you're not doing it properly. No, but you know what? You know, here you are talking about 16 books. It's going to be 78 next year. Um you had a whole career behind you before you started writing. I pretty much was in the same boat. I did not write until 35, 36 years into my career. Um, and now, I guess since 2000, I published in 2013. So it's been eight years now. And I've had, uh, I have 11 books out there, 12 books out there in, in the uh, wild. And I don't plan to stop writing anytime soon either. But um I think there's something energetic about doing what you like to do. Is that Oh a, yeah, very much that, so. Is that a fair statement? And and I th- and anyone that thinks, "Oh, I'm too old to write." You know, how about how about it looking at your writing as a way of getting energized, getting excited, you know, wanting to jump out of bed, wanting to tackle that next chapter? How are you going to solve that mystery? How are you going to get through that plot hole? How are you going to fix this thing? And those are the things that I enjoy now. I enjoy writing immensely. And if I get a chance to sit down uh, for several hours with a cup of coffee and uh, some ambient music in the background, I can just go into that world and it it goes by like in an instant. I can tell you that I look at my watch and, oh my, I'm, I'm going to be late for dinner again. I'm going to get yelled at. <laughs> so well, my wife, my wife has a, has a lovely phrase. She says that uh, being married to David, she said, it's like being married to a golfer, only he's there. <laughs> because I'm, because I'm in the other room, I might yeah. just as well be on the golf course. Yep, absolutely. And I write about five hours a day, seven days a week. That's excellent. I'm, Which I'm is so, a lot. Yeah, it is. I, and I'm so happy that you do. It sounds like you have a routine. seems like you know what you want to accomplish that day, and you go about and do it. Um, and that and that is nice. Uh, seven days a week. Uh, I don't quite write seven, uh, but... Um, well, it's as if I'm not going on holiday, you know, not yeah. when I'm on holiday, but I mean, generally, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a rule of thumb. No, I, I get it. And, and, and I write probably... Uh, very regularly, as, as as in compared to some writers, uh, but not every single day, uh, and not that. And I don't find my I don't get guilty if I don't write every single day. Uh, if I if I have a reason to have a, an afternoon off to do something else, it, I feel it's a little it's a little refreshing for me. So that when I come back to my writing the next day, I'm a little bit refreshed. But that's not to say that I am. Um, not wanting to sit down at the keyboard and, and type out, you know, the chapter that I, I plan for that day. So for me, um, I find that uh, I, I love it. 
and it sounds like you do too. And uh, as they have, they have a saying here in the United States: "God willing, and the creek don't rise." That if uh, if you can <laughs> if you can continue to write and and move on, that's fantastic. So uh, my best to you, and I really look forward to it. Uh, David, how can people get in touch with you if they want to uh, continue this conversation? Well, they have to go through um, Joff Books, okay. J O F E. Joff Books are my publisher, but if they want to speak to me, um, I have an email address um, if they want to contact me, but I don't always respond because of the situation we've got with the internet at the moment. You don't know who you're talking to. So it's best really to go through the publisher, and if they want the books, they're all with Amazon. Okay. Um, all my books are on Amazon, um, and um, I know that the publisher, if they want to really contact me, if they ring the publisher, get out of the publisher, they will get in contact with me, and I will always con- contact someone who wants to speak to me. I'll never forget or um, ignore them. And it's David Hodges, H-O-D-G-E-S, and uh, the, the most recent one is the uh, the Somerset Levels. It's, it's uh, Stalker on the on the levels. Okay, yeah, but I mean the series is the Somerset Levels. Oh, the series. Yes. Yeah, they're mur- it's the um, Somerset Murder Mystery Series. It is. There it is, Somerset Murder Mystery Series. David, thank you so much for coming on. I certainly appreciate it. This was wonderful, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Our guest next week is Sybil Johnson. Sybil grew up in the Pacific Northwest. She fell in love with mysteries, reading Encyclopedia Brown and Nancy Drew. In junior high school, she discovered Agatha Christie. After high school graduation, Sybil moved south to attend the University of Southern California, majoring in computer science. After 20 years of designing and writing code and managing programmers and software development projects, she turned to a life of crime writing. Her short fiction has appeared in Mysterical E, Spine Tingler Magazine, King's River Life Magazine, Crimson Dagger, and Silver Moon Magazine. A past president of Sisters in Crime Los Angeles, Sybil co-chaired the 2011 California Crime Writers Conference. She also served as As We Love Libraries Coordinator for Sync National. In her spare time, she enjoys studying ancient languages, such as ancient Egyptian and Coptic, which are her current areas of interest. She spends time with friends and family in Southern California. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.